The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. He woke his daughter. While she got ready, Keyes returned to the shed yet again. The space heaters had been left on to slow rigor mortis. He rolled Samantha's body in a tarp, opened up his lower cabinets, and hid her remains, turning off the heaters, double-locked the shed door, and called a cab. Feldest asked, well, what was your plan? Keyes responded, I was thinking it was 20 degrees outside and I didn't have anything to worry about. Feldis, were you worried about getting caught? No, he replied. From American Predator by Maureen Callahan. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love from head to Hi, Murder Bookies. I'm your host, Jill, and I'm back with new episode 47, Meticulous Methods, Part 2, on American Predator by Maureen Callahan, an intense read on the investigation of serial killer Israel Keys. I began this story last episode, 46, Killer Thaw. So if you haven't heard that one, do so. It will make a lot more sense. Before we begin, great news. My merch store is open on Spreadshop. I have a link on my blog, www.murdershelfbookclub.com, and you can find the link on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have fun getting your t-shirts, hoodies, water bottles, whatever you want, and send me pictures. Listen, I greatly appreciate your support of me in this podcast. And a shout out to my Iranian murder bookies. I see you as you hear me. So in episode 46, part one, Killer Thaw, up in Anchorage, Alaska, high school student Samantha Koenig disappeared from her job, launching a huge investigation. Once it was confirmed a kidnapping, the Anchorage PD and FBI tracked the suspect who was using her boyfriend Dwayne's ATM card in the lower 48 states of Arizona and Texas. Bolos, be on the lookout and some amazing police work down in Texas led to the arrest of Israel Keys. The interrogation wasn't easy due to interdepartmental difficulties, as well as wrangling with an intelligent, manipulative killer with meticulous methods. Interrogating Israel Keys was an adventure in frustration. FBI agent Steve Payne and Anchorage PD Jeff Bell were focused on the ransom note. With a photo of Samantha with a newspaper dated February 13, 2012, that Keyes had posted in a park. This picture is also posted on my blog. Question Was Samantha alive in the photo? Nope, Keyes replied. Question Was she alive when you got back from your trip? Nope. Question Was she alive when you left? Snarky, Keyes said, quote, That would seem like an obvious question, end quote. Federal prosecutor Kevin Feldis interjected, quote, so she, she was alive, end quote. For the record, this guy is not my favorite. Now, Jeff Bell knew the second the ransom note came in that Samantha was dead, but Feldis blithely continued, quote, but, but what did you do to her, end quote. This short exchange is devastating, with Keyes definitely running the room, quote, I already know who I want to tell that story to, the lead detective, end quote, meaning Anchorage PD's homicide detective, Monique Mickey Dahl. Question, why do you want specifically to tell her? Keyes smiled, quote, because that's the way I am, end quote. Feldis butchered the interrogation further and then probably exasperated, Keyes just out and out admitted he was responsible for killing Samantha. But first, Keys now had demands or no blow-by-blow description. First, don't tear up his girlfriend Kimberly's house anymore and get his permission before searching further. And second, he told them, quote, 
I don't want to hear about you questioning her again. Obviously, you have no reason to trust me, but I can tell you right now that there is no one who knows me or has ever known me who knows everything about me really. I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows what I am telling you, the kinds of things I'm telling you, is me. End quote. Question How long have there been two Israel keys? He answered, quote, A long time, 14 years. End quote. April 1st, 2012, back in Anchorage from Texas, Detective Mickey Dahl faced Israel Keys. And typically, Prosecutor Kevin Feldes began questioning Keys rather than handing off to Dahl, threatening Keys' cooperation again. Because there were too many people in the room, Keys said he would provide what he'd called an abridged version of the crime, still trying to control the process. He commented, quote, some of this stuff is very uh, personal to me, end quote. Steve Payne wondered if Keyes was getting off telling the details to a young, attractive detective. But honestly, who cared? The goal was to get the details. But Feldis, Payne knew, Feldis wouldn't leave the room without a fight. Dahl apologized for interrupting, giving off a detached, respectful vibe as she restarted the dynamic to resemble something like Clarice Starling chatting with Hannibal Lecter. And this was deliberate, a strategy, as the search of Israel's house yielded scores of books, many about serial killers. Oh my God, murder bookies, Israel Keys has a murder shelf. Oh my God. The two days in February 2012, that Keyes went missing in Texas, were of an even deeper concern now. Samantha wasn't his first victim. Had she even been the last? How many times had he done this before? The team believed Israel Keyes was a serial killer, two different peoples, as he himself said. Dahl's first question wasn't about Samantha, though. It was about Israel's daughter. He didn't want her raised by his mom? Keyes' response, quote, very perceptive. End quote. Question, was he concerned about this now? No, not anymore. With Keyes stressing again that there were too many people in the room, indicating Kevin Feldes. White-knuckled, Feldes again pushed for a start with the abridged version, like Keyes wanted. So awkward. Look, Feldes is a federal prosecutor. He really has no business being part of the interrogation. Back in 2000, when I was with the U.S. Army in Kosovo after ethnic cleansing had savaged the area, as a civilian, I was told in serious circumstances, do not try to handle that for which you are not trained. Speak to what you know, not what you don't. Their expression was, stay in your lane. Feldis is out of his lane here. Now, Keyes admitted to Daw at this point, quote, you've got your monster, end quote, illustrating the big difference with how Keyes interacted with Feldis who he wanted to dominate and humiliate. Eventually, Keyes began to talk. In his shed, he put a tarp on the floor. Question, was it for catching blood? No, Keyes explained. It was just a shield he'd prepped a few days earlier with no person or plan in mind. He'd gone trolling, looking for a lone, vulnerable teenage girl. That night, he randomly stumbled upon Samantha, and he liked her. He liked her? He thought about waiting for her ride to pick her up and then taking them both. Wow. So this guy was confident that he could handle a twofer. A sinking feeling came. Had Keyes done this before too? After stealing the ATM card, Keyes returned home, poured himself a glass of wine, and got water for Samantha returning to the shed. Remarkably composed, Samantha asked for a kidnap update. Had he reached her dad? Keyes assured her it was all fine, untying her, letting her get her hopes up. And then he restrained her again, cruelly crushing that hope. But Snag, girlfriend Kimberly, was awake inside their home. Now that's a contradiction. Yesterday, or last episode, Keyes said Kimberly was asleep at this point. With the shed space heaters pushing the heat to 90 degrees, which is 32 Celsius, heavy metal music throbbing, the smell of smoke, urine, and sweat overpowering in the small shed. Keys raped Samantha twice, as he put it, taking two to three songs to finish. 
Samantha asked if he was going to kill her and tried to talk him out of it, but he was unmoved and Samantha was murdered. Keyes shared, quote, it's hard work to strangle somebody. I knew it from the minute she walked out of that coffee stand that she wasn't going to live, end quote. A somber doll asked, how long did it take her to die? And Keyes said, quote, it was taking, I mean, it's always, well, it's hard to tell. It was taking a while. I remember thinking, I still have to shower, end quote. Wow, that cavalier, whoa, as the team took all this in. Rape and murder before he had to leave with his little girl to go on a cruise. He added a tidbit. He'd also stabbed Samantha, but he wouldn't talk about that. Showered, he woke up his daughter, and while she was getting ready, he went back to the shed, wrapping the body in a tarp, hiding her body in a cabinet. Space heater switched off, he turned out the light, locked up the shed, and called a cab. Israel added, quote, I'd been listening to the police scanner a lot recently and just felt by the time anyone figured out what had actually happened, the trail would be already cold. Even if they had pictures of my truck, they wouldn't know whose truck it was. They wouldn't have forensic evidence. They wouldn't have shoe prints. They certainly wouldn't have fingerprints or DNA or anything. So I didn't worry about it, end quote. And if law enforcement was honest, Israel Keys was soberly, embarrassingly correct. He predicted the Anchorage PD's initial lack of and inept response. So the Keyes family went off on a cruise with the dead body in the shed for two weeks. February 18th, 2012, Israel arrived back in Anchorage with his daughter. Kimberly was traveling with a friend until the 22nd. On February 21st, with kiddo at school, Keyes began to take the shed apart from the inside, dismantling everything, chopping it into firewood. Samantha's body was now triple wrapped in a foam mat, sleeping bag, and tarp, the sleeping bag soaked with her blood. Okay, another contradiction. Remember how he minimized the stabbing? Now he is saying the sleeping bag was soaked with blood. Everything Samantha touched or brushed up against was cut up, put in a huge garbage bag, along with the clothes he wore that night, and burned in his fireplace. And this part's difficult to hear murder bookies. Keys went on, quote, I thawed her out. She wasn't rigid, but floppy. And I wouldn't tell you this part, except you're going to find out anyways. This stuff is private, but um, I had sex with her, her corpse. She was warm, and I guess I lost track of time, end quote, because that's when his daughter came knocking on the shed door. Laughing as he remembered, he'd said, quote, be right out, go eat breakfast, end quote. Question, how did he do the ransom note and photo? Keyes explained he got a Polaroid camera at Target, but they were out of film. So he put his daughter to bed and then left her alone, driving an hour to the Wasilla Target to get the film, also picking up a ribbon and paper for a typewriter he'd gotten at Goodwill. The February 13th newspaper came from a dumpster. Dahl asked why he picked February 13th, and Keyes said, quote, because I wasn't in Anchorage on the 13th, end quote. Meticulous methods, man. He said it took him like three to five hours to do Samantha's makeup using a ton of foundation. Quote, well, she didn't look good. Her skin. You could start to see the blood underneath the skin. I mean, she was in good shape, but she definitely didn't look alive, end quote. With Kimberly back now, he worked late at night, finding the hardest part was her face which was expressionless. Well, yeah, she's been dead for 21 days, you ghoul. After glue failed, he used fishing line, sewing, so it looked like she was squeezing her eyes shut. Payne asked, quote, why did you go to all the trouble to do this? Keyes replied, it's obvious. The bottom line was to get money out of it, but at the same time, it's not like I didn't want to do it, end quote. Murder bookies realize I cut out a lot here leaving what I did because I thought it was necessary to understand what happened to Samantha and what was going on in this guy's mind, as horrendous as it is. Gloved, Keyes put the photos and the ransom note in a Ziploc bag, then posted it on Connors Bog Park Community Bulletin Board. Later, with Kimberly out of friends, he turned on Samantha's cell phone and texted Dwayne, 
then removed the battery again. Later, he passed sirens and flashing lights at the park and knew the police had found the note. The police investigation revealed that Israel Keyes was struggling financially in spite of cruises and travel all over the place, which is why Keyes kept the ATM card to get money. He claimed he had no idea his movements could be tracked using the card, which is somewhat mystifying for a very intelligent, organized guy. And I don't believe it. He just needed the money and he took the risk. Time to move Samantha's body. Keith said, quote, she was starting to smell a little bit. I decided to get it done and figured out some excuses what I was going to be doing for three days, end quote. He placed Samantha into a large tote and dismembered her. It took him three-day trips out to Matanuska Lake, always removing his SIM card and battery from his cell phone, dragging a chainsaw, lead weights, a snow shovel, plywood, fishing gear, and his ice hut on his sled. He went out about 200 yards, which is about 183 meters. Cutting the hole in the ice was harder than Keyes expected. He used the lead weights to test the depth of the waters. Lake Matanuska went down 80 feet or 24 meters at its deepest. Placing plywood over the hole, he put snow on top of it and left. So it occurred to me that every time his cell phone drops data, it is a signal that Keyes is doing something very, very bad. Just saying. Ice fishing day two, driving in commuter traffic. With more of Samantha's remains in his pickup, Keyes went back to the lake. He weighted her body parts and dropped them down the hole into the icy waters. And then he left for a parent-teacher conference about the Gifted and Talented program. Okay, there you are. There are the two Israel Keys, side by side. The rest of the remains were dropped in the lake on day three, observing the area cautiously for any witnesses. Very disciplined and methodical killer, Payne thought. Now they could retrieve Samantha and bring her home, and this would be so much harder than it sounded. The Anchorage FBI Evidence Response Team Special Agent Liz Overlander reached out to the FBI dive team. Usually it took two months to prep for a dangerous recovery, but Liz Overlander needed it to happen pronto. Sitting in traffic in Los Angeles, Bobby Chacon got the call, quote, there's a kid up in Anchorage who's been dismembered. They need you right away, end quote. Chacon sent an email blast, report immediately to his team of six or seven divers. He called the FBI in Anchorage and was told, quote, we have a confession. She's in the lake, end quote. Bobby Chacon had been diving for the FBI for 20 years his first recovering being the 1996 search for the 230 passengers and crew of TWA Flight 800 that crashed off Long Island, which this New Jersey girl remembers well. It took four months to recover DNA from every single victim. The cause of this crash was deduced to be an explosion in the center fuel tank. Now, Tacone planned out this recovery, getting coordinates, water depths, distance to shore, average temperature. He asked Oberlander, do you have a forklift? She got one, plus a pop-up shelter so the team could dress while protecting the monitors from the elements and providing some privacy. This retrieval of human remains would be difficult. Which divers could handle the geographic challenges coupled with the mental and emotional issues to come debated? Thank you, FBI dive team, for the work you do. I cannot fathom how you do what you do. Truly, I feel indebted to you. Fathom. See what I did there? Mm. Now in Anchorage, Bobby Chacon was struck by the number of Samantha's missing posters everywhere. And he knew the FBI's arrival in town would trigger unease. Federal agents being set in wasn't good. April 1st, 2012. Oberlander met Chacon, going to see the key shed being processed. Tools, clothes, plastic bags, spare parts all over, multiple shelving units, stuff slung on hooks. It reminded Bobby of Yuta Bob or Ted Kaczynski's cabin. From his barren remote Montana cabin, 
Kaczynski mailed bombs, murdering and maiming all over the U.S. until his arrest in 1996. 1996 was a big year, evidently. Ted Kaczynski was an off-the-gridder, a loner, paranoid, with an enormous distrust of the U.S. government. And this sounded a lot like Keyes. If half of what Keyes had said was true, Keyes was as organized and lethal as the Unabomber. April 2nd, 2012, Payne, Bell, Nelson were on hand as the dive team began with a moment of silence. The ice was close to three feet thick. Sonar equipment went down, and two hours into it, there were five pings, just as Keyes had said. Visual verification is mandatory. The four-propeller ROV, remotely operated vehicle, went down, which would send up visual imagery. Almost immediately, it hit and a human foot was seen on the screen. A jolt shot through Chacon and his team. He told Oberlander, quote, I can now confirm to you that I have human remains, end quote. Cell phones lit up, buzzing the news. I have some photos that I took at CrimeCon 2018 when Bobby Chacon spoke about all this. They're also posted on my blog. Ten teammates prepared the divers, Their work under the water is so difficult that they prepare nothing themselves. Suiting up in 100 pounds of gear takes two hours, giving divers time to think what they might need, how long they might be down, order of recovery, what they'd find, all vital factors. The 10 by 10 feet or 3 by 3 meter triangular holes were cut into the ice that allowed them to shimmy themselves down by hanging on at a 45 degree angle necessary for leverage. The ice was thick, the water clear, and the press and observers had arrived. 7 p.m., diver Charles Bartenfeld, aka Bart, went in first. 15 minutes later, Bart made the descent, landing right near her torso, kicking up debris. Diver Joe Allen joined Bart, unhooking the body bag from his chest, and the two men struggled to secure the remains. Slipping, they rolled the torso into the bag, which was only slightly less taxing. The weights Keys had wired on Samantha's remains could not be removed. And contrary to myth, bodies are not weightless in the water. So coupled with the anchors, the body bag was terribly heavy. Alan retrieved the arms, which were wired together nearby. Then his glove tore on a wire, exposing his flesh to the icy water. Chacon asked if he could gut it out. Affirmative, and a few minutes later, all of Samantha's remains were recovered as a shard of nighttime sunlight shone through the ice, illuminating the exhausted divers. Bart and Allen would remain in the water until all the procedures were completed, protocols that were established by Bobby Chacon. Job done, the dive team was leaving Anchorage, where hope had shifted to grief, as indicated by a sign which read, Our warmest condolences to the Koenig family. Bobby Chacon retired in 2014 and at his retirement party commented that he will never miss pulling another dead child out of the water. Later, driving home past Samantha's kiosk, Jeff Bell wept. He would never see the kiosk the same way. I will be interviewing Bobby Chacon about all of this after second cast in a few weeks. Please watch for that special interview. Fun fact, and Lord knows that we need one right about now. April 2nd gets about 14 hours of sunlight in Anchorage. I was in Finland during July, and believe me, you lose all track of time when the sun is bright in the sky at midnight. It's really disorienting, and it can make for some nasty hangovers too. Learning her body had been recovered, James Koenig and Duane began mourning in earnest, as well as the community, all grieving the loss of Samantha, her young life snuffed out too soon. But investigators knew it was just the beginning for them. Keyes had said, quote, I have a lot more stories to tell, end quote. And they believed him. Who was Israel Keyes? The computers seized at the Keyes residence were key. <laughs> they were key. The tip line also began to buzz. 17 calls came in from locals who had hired Keys to work in their homes, and they were overwhelmingly positive. 
All right, Keyes did great work. He was reliable, friendly, worked alone, and most were hoping his arrest was a misunderstanding. A friend of both Keyes and Kimberly's, she'd hired him to work on her home too, and he'd bring his daughter along, and they were adorable together. However, one day she caught Keyes giving her a look that leveled her, causing real fear, but she convinced herself it was nothing. You know what I'm going to say, guys. Trust your gut. Right before Samantha went missing, Keyes hadn't shown up at work and didn't return her calls. Alarmed, she went over to his house knocking. Eventually, Keyes answered the door. She could smell alcohol. He was disheveled, hollow-eyed, a complete shock to her. Keyes said he was okay. Quote, it's just the Alaskan winters. They've got me down. End quote. Common enough complaint. She believed him. A tip came in from Maine. The Keyses had lived in Idaho with a Christian identity group preaching white supremacy. Another caller from Texas spoke about Heidi Keyes' church, describing it as a cult. Maureen Callahan writes, quote, The group are Koreshian, followers of David Koresh. They have interrupted other church services yelling, You are going to hell! They clean guns, talk about explosives. Men from the group have multiple wives who are young and often teenagers or preteens. Neighbors are scared to death for their safety and their children's safety, end quote. Now, that's kind of scary. By the way, it was later learned that one of the Anchorage FBI guys had hired keys for a renovation. Yeah. FBI agent Kat Nelson examined Keyes' computers, finding hundreds of photos of faces. Women, children, men, middle-aged, old, all races, slim, overweight. I mean, pick a variable it was represented. In many cases, the photo was attached to a news story reporting a disappearance or a missing person flyer on social media. Among them were photos of Samantha Koenig. Were these potential victims or victims or information? Call in the FBI profilers. Armin Showalter, one of the best serial killer profiles at the Bureau, told Payne he just didn't know. He'd never heard of a kidnapping murder like this one. No one in the BAU had. Sending him the images, he'd run facial recognition on them. There was no national database for missing persons, no law that required missing adults to be reported, and no ways to tell if Keyes liked reading about missing people or was cataloging his victims. With the dive team in town, Dahl and Payne realized the media would tie Samantha to the activities at the lake. They reassured Keyes that the media would have extremely limited information about what happened to her, protecting his daughter as he demanded. This resonated, but he said ominously, quote, this case is not the end and you'll never find another body without me, end quote. But at that moment, Israel was fixed on firing his attorney. Rich Kurtner, asking if Payne and Dahl could help him. An interesting development, evidence of maybe some trust being built, but the police legally have zero input into attorney-client relations. Payne suggested he speak to them about other crimes where Kurtner was not representing him. All Keyes had to do was say he was representing himself in these other yet unnamed cases. And this was when Kevin Feldis began trying to threaten Keyes, saying he only had leverage because he has information. If another body is found anywhere across the country, controlling the media would be problematic and Keyes would lose. Keyes was not buying it. He spoke with contempt. Quote, here's the deal. I know what you have because I know you have the computer. I'm only going to give you the dots that I know you're going to eventually connect. And frankly, if I hadn't been picked up in Texas, that computer would be in a landfill right now. I am not going to talk about things unless I know I'm going to get what I want, end quote. Well, question, what did he want? Answer, an execution date. The room fell silent. This was the polar opposite of his initial demand for no death penalty. Keyes went on to explain, quote, I want this whole thing wrapped up and over. I could end up in a federal supermax prison somewhere the rest of my life 
which is what, if my attorney has his way, that's where he wants me to go. And that's not what I want. I want this whole thing wrapped up in a year, end quote. Click. Of course, Keyes would then want to fire his defense attorney, Rich Kurtner, who is among the staunchest anti-death penalty defense lawyers in Alaska, if not the country. Quote, from today, start to finish, I'll tell you about everything. I'll plead guilty to whatever. I'll give you every single gory detail you want, end quote. Question, why was he willing to speak now? Quote, I want my kid to have a chance to grow up. She's in a safe place now. She's not going to see any of this. I want her to have a chance to grow up and not have all this hanging over her head. If I end up in prison, I know how this works. You're going to keep looking and you're going to keep going back. And I don't want news about me. And frankly, I've already talked to my attorney about, don't tell me, Feldis emphatically cut him off. It is against the law for the prosecutor in a case to have any information about the constitutionally protected discussions between a defendant and his lawyer, which is why Feldis should not be involved in this interrogation in the first place. Don't like this guy one bit. Payne interjected, seizing the opportunity. Quote, there's a firestorm coming. Bosses get nervous. They get out their FBI playbook, and it says we send out leads to all the field offices, and they go interview people and put pictures in the media, and it takes on a life of its own. If we have a card to play, maybe there is something we can do to put the brakes on that. End quote. A minute of silence went by. He said, quote, all right, I'll give you two bodies and a name, end quote. A Google Earth view of Burlington, Vermont came up immediately in another room. Grodin and Nelson were Googling missing couple Vermont as profilers at Quantico texted questions. Question, Bill and Lorraine Courier? Israel Keys confirmed that they were his victims. A couple in their 50s, average, middle class, little chunky. Lorraine had light brown hair, eyes crinkling when she smiled. Bill was a big guy, so it wouldn't be easy to take control of one of them, let alone both. Israel spoke. June 2nd, 2011, he flew from Anchorage to Seattle, to Chicago, rented a car, heading towards Maine to visit his brother. Stopping in Indiana, he then went by the old farmhouse he owned in New York and then Burlington, Vermont. Immediately, Jeff Bell made a note to investigate missing people in Indiana and New York as Nelson searched for the New York farmhouse address. Keith checked into the Handy Suites in Essex, Vermont. He took a drive and touristed around a bit. It was really a beautiful night. As Keith spoke, he now reacted physically, excited, knees bobbing, shackles jangling, rubbing the armchair. This would be his signature expression for sexual excitement, a substitution for masturbation, and it indicated the truth of his story. Keyes dug up supplies he had buried two years prior, a five-gallon bucket, which held zip ties, ammo, guns, silencers, duct tape, and Drano to accelerate decomp. He'd buried more kits all over the country. He fell into a trance as he got deeper into the story. Around 8 p.m., a dark rainy night, leaving his hotel, he crossed the road, stalking a victim, and came upon a house on Colbert Street. He got a sense that an older couple was living there. No kid toys, no swing sets. That was part of his code, he said. Quote, the one thing I won't do is mess with kids, end quote. Cutting the phone line, he saw there was no alarm system. Being in construction, it allowed him to predict floor plans easily. Putting on leather batting gloves, dressed in black head to toe, he strapped on an unlit headlamp, climbed through a garage window, and passed the courier's green Saturn sedan. In the car's glove compartment, he confirmed that a middle-aged couple lived there, Lorraine and Bill Courier. He wound up breaking the window to get inside. Was he planning to rob the house? Quote, the main reason I was there was for them, end quote, was the chilling response. A blitz attack came fast as he entered the courier bedroom, zip-tying them. He knew how they'd react, and it gave him a tactical advantage. Did they have guns? 
Yes, a loaded 38 Smith and Wesson in Lorraine's nightstand. He kept his gun pointed at her as he retrieved her 38. Keys pulled lingerie out of the dresser, but added, quote, I don't know if I want to get into that, end quote, although he admitted his motive was purely sexual. They were forced to lie down on the bed, arms behind them. Barking questions, Israel kept them disoriented. Do you have a safe, other guns, prescription drugs, jewelry, ATM card? What's the pin? Lorraine acted, fighting hard, trying to roll herself on the floor, but he grabbed her by the neck, smashing her face. He threatened her as he had Samantha. Angry, Keyes remarked that these folks were not taking him seriously. Ravaging through drawers, he came upon a military patch called an electric strawberry. What a coincidence. He and Bill Currier both served in the Army's 25th Infantry Division. He told that to Bill, letting Bill wonder if this revelation would help them, letting him have hope. Keyes announced they were leaving the house, making sure that Bill and Lorraine put slippers on because of the broken glass. There'd be no blood, no DNA. He put them in the car and drove off. They begged. Bill needed his medication. They had no money. They hadn't seen his face. Let them go. Take the car. Keyes told them that this was just a kidnapping and he was taking them to a safe house. But in his backpack, there was a pan, water bottles, 50 feet of coiled nylon rope, latex gloves, duct tape, and a small profane stove. That does not bode well. About 4 a.m., Saturn pulled into an abandoned farmhouse that had a for sale sign that Keyes had spotted during his earlier drive all part of his M.O., scoping out the area looking for lonely, abandoned, remote buildings. This farmhouse was falling apart, huge hole in the roof, set back on a hill from the main road. It had a huge tree blocking its view. No one had been here in ages. It was perfect. When Keyes took people, he was very aware of the adrenaline rush, the color draining from their faces, pupils dilating in fear, he could smell their sweat, a true predator. Extending these responses as long as possible was another rush. He left Lorraine in the car, moving Bill to the basement. Returning outside, he saw Lorraine standing up in the car and then taking off, running towards the road. Damn it. But Keys was faster, tackling her, dragging her into the house, upstairs to the dilapidated bedroom. He couldn't believe it. She'd almost got away. Angry, he strapped her down with duct tape, rope going around her neck, with her fighting the entire time. Shouts now came up from the basement. Where's my wife? With Lorraine secure again, he grabbed a knife and went down, taking a water bottle with him. Question, why the water bottle? Again, Keyes wasn't sure he wanted to get into that. In the basement, Keyes' headlamp showed a half-untied Bill thrashing to free himself. This enraged Keyes. Bill fought back, managing to shove Israel around. Where was the pulsating fear? Keyes told the team, quote, when things get physical, that pisses me off because there's a very specific way I want things done. Very specific way I want things to happen. And I have the whole thing planned out, end quote. Investigators determined Keyes planned on raping Bill too. Quote, so when somebody messes up that plan, it kind of surprises even me that I lost control that way, end quote. Murder bookies, the fantasy is everything, all important, although it seldom goes as the serial killer anticipates. That's why he's mad. Unraveling, Israel Keys ran upstairs to fetch his loaded gun equipped with a homemade silencer. Returning to the basement, he saw Bill back on his feet again, yelling. Keyes shot Bill, hitting his arms, neck, head, and chest. And Bill was still standing. Keyes had never seen anything like it. But finally, Bill collapsed to the floor. Unnerved, Keyes went out to have a cigar and tried to pull himself together. It's all ugly, but this next part is really ugly murder bookies, so brace yourselves. Inside again, Keyes covered the bedroom window that faced the road with a detached door and set up the propane stove and boiled water. Question, what was that for? Quote, Keyes chuckled. I don't know if I want to get into that today, end quote. Oh, God. 
After gagging Lorraine with paper towels, he cut her clothes off with a knife as she fought. He raped her twice, using condoms both times. Then they shared a cigar, again with the shared. During the second rape, he choked her unconscious, not ready to kill her yet. It was clear to investigators that Keyes was reestablishing dominance as Bill's resistance had emasculated him. He took Lorraine to the basement, where she saw her husband dead, lying in his own blood, so much blood, a mistake Keyes usually did not make. Wearing gloves, he strangled Lorraine with a rope, double-checking to make sure she was dead. This older couple were way tougher than he'd imagined. He cut off their restraints, poured Drano over their bodies, putting each in trash bags and leaving them with the garbage in the corner. The sun was up now, so he had run out of time. He couldn't burn down the house as he'd planned to cover his tracks. But he thought whoever bought this house was interested in the land and they'd tear the house down themselves. The basement would smell so putrid, they'd assume some animal had died down there. Exiting, Keyes drove the courier's car to the Rite Aid parking lot where he'd left his rental the night before, far away from surveillance cameras. Head down, hoodie up, their ATM card in hand, with only $100 in the courier's account, Israel passed. It wasn't worth the risk. Aha, so he slipped up, revealing he did know he could be tracked using a victim's ATM card. This whole thing had taken about six hours, start to finish. He drove to Maine. Why had he done this? He said, quote, I don't consider myself that different than hundreds of thousands of people, end quote. But recall, they had found bondage, S&M, gay, transgender porn on his computer. Only Key said he took it to the next level. Quote, the sexual fantasies, the money, the adrenaline rush. Once you get started, there's nothing like it. End quote. During this whole gruesome rendition, investigators noted the similarities of what he'd done to Lorraine and Samantha, tied with zip ties rope around the neck, stuffing mouths with paper products, sharing cigars with the women, stabbing and raping them twice, plus stealing ATM cards. A signature was emerging. On the way home from Maine, Israel drove past the courier's Vermont home, learning the police were clueless and that a witness had come forward saying he'd seen a white man with long brown hair driving the courier's car. Not worried, the sketch didn't look like him. And the sketch can be seen on my blog, too. Back in the present, Keyes knew he'd been sloppy while in Texas. He didn't always turn his cell phone off. He had dime-marked packets of money in his rental car, which had obviously exploded after a bank robbery. Bandit Tracker, a website that catalogs surveillance images, found a video of a masked man who looked like Keyes committing a robbery in the National Bank of Azle, Texas. Links to Bandit Tracker were found on Israel's computer, too. Yet, Keyes believed he was in control of this narrative, offering information on arson. He burned down a house, but in return, he laughed, saying he wanted a cigar first. From this discussion with him, police learned that one of Israel Keyes' favorite pastimes was pulling up small towns on Google Earth, remote places with easy highway access, towns that rarely have crime, and consequently, an inexperienced police department. Then he'd search and see how many banks were in the area, which had surveillance cameras, little infrastructure, and thus were wholly unprepared for a bank robbery. Keyes said he was, quote, on a supersonic high after what he'd done in Alaska. It was all he could think about. Killing Samantha in his own backyard was the biggest riskiest thing he'd ever done, and he'd gotten away with it, end quote. He thought he had. He felt emboldened when he posted comments on the Alaskan Daily News website. He loved seeing the investigation play out, enjoyed the anonymous recognition, feeling omnipotent. The family crews hadn't taken the edge off as he had hoped. Question, did he take someone in Texas? He denied it. So what had he been doing for those two days? After a lot of smoke and mirrors, Keith said he drove around, burnt a house down, and yeah, okay, so he had thought about taking someone too. So spot on Bell. He was all amped up. He'd even considered burning churches. 
churches. Why churches, Bell asked. Quote, oh, it's a personal thing. It's not so much that I care, but I had it in my mind that I was going to start using churches. End quote. His computer confirmed that he had searched remotely located churches. He fantasized about his victims being held in a small town church, raping and torturing as they pleaded for their lives to a God who didn't exist. Maybe he'd staged the bodies on the altar, waiting for them to be discovered by a priest or maybe even the congregation. Or maybe he'd just burn it down, the victims inside. But this hadn't worked out. And we are beginning to see the real Israel Keys. Question. Did this come from the way he was raised? Ah, uh, probably, he conceded, but it really was just his general philosophy. Hard line was drawn. He would not speak about his childhood further, which convinced the team that this was important territory to delve into. How had Israel Keyes become a monster? Keyes found Texas harder than he'd imagined. Straight-talking shit-kickers, people who were openly suspicious of outsiders, and many people had guns. Like, no one took their personal safety for granted. Way to go, Texas. That's why it took him so long to find a house to burn in Alto. Frantic Googling, Nelson found it, a fire in Alito, Texas, on February 16, 2012. And the house was remote and would draw police so he could hit the bank. Bank robbery, hunting prey, and arson. Clearly, Keyes was out of control and was escalating. Before he wanted to remain off the radar, a ghost with no visible or virtual footprint. Now he felt himself conducting elaborate crimes that would make the national news. This urge for infamy had built up slowly over the years. For a long, long time, he only checked media coverage from airports, libraries, public computers only. As he became more brazen, Israel became frustrated. He wanted the world to know in the history of monsters, he was great. He never believed he'd get caught. Now, the Alito house was a train wreck, having a lot in common with the courier's farmhouse. Was this a diversion so he could go rob a bank? Quote, I didn't need a diversion, he replied. End quote. Another contradiction. So, so far, Keyes had gone into detail on what he had done February 13th, 14th, and 16th, but not the 15th the day he was found by his family in Clyburn, next to his mud-splattered rental car, filthy, erratic, after two days missing. That happened on the 15th, the investigators asked. Now, in searching girlfriend Kimberly's house, a piece of paper with a random number written on it was found, another clue. It turns out the numbers were police scanner frequencies for Stephenville, Texas. Keys meticulously planned escape routes in advance. Stevensville was an hour from Alito and Clyburn. Bell knew he had taken someone in Texas. He just knew it. February 15th, 2012, Texas missing person, Jimmy Tidwell, an electrician who'd last been seen in Longville, Texas, two hours outside of Dallas, was heading home after working the night shift. Days later, his white Ford pickup truck was found parked five miles from his home. There was no sign of forced entry or foul play, according to his sister, Lynn Atkin. Reliable, punctual, a wood carver, Jimmy's glasses were found on the seat, but no wallet, phone, or keys. 58 years old, long wavy brown hair, glasses, married to Carol with two grown children. Nothing marked Tidwell as a high-risk victim. No one believed he had hitchhiked off to a new life. A manhunt ensued, reward money raised, and not a single lead emerged. Did what happened to Tidwell fit Israel Key's MO? Well, let's see. Lone guy in a remote area like Enterprise, Texas, a deserted road, his truck found in another location where highways intersect, State Highway 315 and Farm to Market 95 and a body possibly dumped at a third location to confuse police, possibly Lake Pat Clyburn, located 57 minutes from Stephenville. 
a lake area where a rental car could get stuck in the mud. Well, it sounds plausible to me. And grim fact, Jimmy Tidwell often wore a white hard hat on the job. In the Azel surveillance video, the bank robber was seen wearing a white hard hat with long wavy chestnut hair. This happening the day after Jimmy went missing. And oh my God, the robber's hair looked a lot like Tidwell's. Keys gave them a horrifying clue. He, quote, hadn't been wearing a wig, end quote, at the Azel bank robbery. Asked where he got real hair, he went silent, finally saying, quote, you don't have to buy real hair to get real hair. Hair is free. Everything is free if you take it, end quote. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, the FBI was using facial recognition to try to identify the hundreds of photos found on his computer, comparing them with those on NamUs and the National Missing and Unidentified Persons website, finding 44 matches. 11 were teens, 10 smaller children, the youngest a year old. One thing I won't do is mess with kids, huh? Serial killers lie, murder bookies. They lie. They would continue to identify the remaining photos. Anyone who disappeared during Keyes' timeline had to be considered a possible victim. The shed where Samantha was held and Israel's pickup truck revealed no evidence, both frustrating and sobering. FBI profilers were flabbergasted. Keyes was one of the most terrifying suspects they'd ever encountered. His MO was entirely unique in the realm of serial killing. He avoided detection through Americano coffee-fueled travel, buried murder tools, retrieving them years later, shunning technology, no GPS, only paper maps, turning his cell phone on and off and removing the battery, all new. Pat Nelson actually reversed this on him like I suspected. He was doing something when his phone went dark, and these dark spots were breadcrumbs to follow, a tell. Callahan writes, quote, until Samantha, Keyes had left no digital trail, no cell phone, no credit card activity. Until Samantha, he swore he'd never killed in his own backyard. Decades of mayhem and geographical boundaries unknown. If Israel Keyes existed, someone even more diabolical would follow. They needed to understand the forces that built Israel Keyes, the first sui generis serial killer of the 21st century, end quote. Traditional investigative techniques continued as new additions, FBI agents Ten Halla and Colleen Sanders, began to research Keyes' fascination with several serial killers, hoping for insight. Keyes especially liked FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood's Dark Dreams, Sexual Violence, Homicide, and the Criminal Mind book, where Hazelwood expounds on specific deviations of the sexually sadistic criminal. These are no criminal record prior to arrest, giving the appearance of a happy domestic life, and compulsive driving. Oh my God, that's keys, right? Hazelwood explains there's a, quote, shared tendency among psychopaths, feeding an overarching need for control, freedom, and constant visual stimulation to counter the boredom they feel, end quote. Another passage was spot on Israel Keys. Quote, the sexual offender is never fully inactive. He may not be acting out against a specific victim, but he will be making plans, selecting new targets, acting out against other victims, or gathering materials. He is never dormant, end quote. Whoa, Keyes is the poster child for these sexual sadistic criminals, albeit with his own unique twist. Halla and Sanders saw that Keyes had borrowed some of his methodology from other serial predators, revamping their techniques. Israel's biggest role model, Ted Bundy, killed all over the country. James Mitchell de Bartolevin kept at least one kill kit. John Robert Williams, he was a trucker, and he killed in one state and left bodies in another. Dennis Rader BTK posed at least one of his victims in the basement of his church, taking degrading Polaroid photos, the camera used by Israel Keyes. Of Keyes himself, Hazelwood said this, 
he, quote, was among the top criminally organized minds he had ever encountered. But Keyes should not be mistaken as lacking emotion. Far from it. Psychopathic sadists such as Keyes have pushed their emotions down so deep, only extreme acts evoke any feeling whatsoever. That's why their crimes, horrific even in the beginning, must escalate, typically from the torture of small animals to ropes and murders, increasingly elaborate in planning and realization. Palatable gratification comes only through multiple victims and great suffering, end quote. I think we can see that. Holy moly, that's a lot to digest. Hazelwood tells us that the sadistic, sexually motivated killer is truly rare, and Israel Keys was in the 1% of the 1%. Israel said he thought he was reading about himself when he first read Dark Dreams. He never realized his perspective and obsessions weren't unique. As unthinkable as these crimes are, Working on the origins of Israel Keyes as a serial killer was considered a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and Keyes was resisting. Had he been abused as a child, Keyes denied it, repeatedly insisting his family had nothing to do with any of it. They were good people who loved him. But Keyes couldn't avoid the court-mandatory psychological evaluation if he wanted the death penalty. He had to be found sane. Washington State forensic psychologist Dr. Ronald Roche was assigned the task, combining his report, interviews, plus journal entries seized from Keyes' home, allowed investigators to finally construct a history. Born in Tiny Cove, Utah, on January 7, 1978, his parents were teenagers when they met in Los Angeles. John Jeffrey Keyes, called Jeff, was quiet kept to himself, spending his time with family, having few friends. He was a natural-born mechanic. Heidi Hawkinson Keys was adopted by an older couple. A loner, Heidi had seemed more mature for her age, preferring to hang out with adults. A Girl Scout for 11 years, she later shunned football games and beach parties. Mormons, Heidi and Jeff were married at ages 21 and 22 respectively, planning to raise a family all natural, as God had intended. Moving to Utah, their daughter named America was born at home, delivered by Jeff, as all the following eight would be. Jeff hated medicine, rules, and doctors. None of their children had birth certificates, social security numbers, or attended public school. The Keyses picked up and moved to Washington, purchasing 160 acres near Colville after a neighbor called social services on them. Israel, their second child, was five when they rented a one-room cabin without plumbing, heat, or electricity. Jeff ran a meager repair shop while building a house for the family, chopping trees down himself. A deeply religious woman, Heidi found Jeff's religious beliefs extreme. No TV, no radio, no telephone, no computers. The outside world was an unknown entity. Living in poverty, the kids sensed they were missing out on something. They learned to recite scriptures, wear hand-me-down clothing and shoes. Israel's toes were disfigured from years of poorly fitting shoes. While they loved their children, the kids provided free labor, cleaning, chopping, babysitting each other. Israel emerged as the man of the house when Jeff wasn't home, cooking, sewing, braiding hair. That's where he learned it patiently attending to his siblings. Heidi Keys felt superior. She wasn't materialistic. She was a nonconformist. Her children were thriving, raising them without the help of science, capitalism, or government. Medical issues? Well, they were treated by herbs, oils, and tea. They didn't even have Tylenol. As the cabin filled up with babies, Israel and his sisters moved outside to a tent. In winter, Heidi took them to California to visit Jeff's mother, who lived in a trailer in Palm Springs. By the time baby number five was due, Heidi had had it, telling Jeff she needed a real house, not a tent. Jeff's response, it was in God's hands. All right, that would have been a much longer discussion in my home, just saying. In Colville, Washington, they joined a militia-based white supremacist anti-Semitic church called the Ark. 
just in time for impressionable 12-year-old Israel's interest to swell. What could go wrong? This sliver of the outside world included two new friends, two brothers, Chevy and Cheney Kehoe, who were about Israel's age. As Mr. Kehoe fixated on the coming race war, his sons were taught about guns, and Israel loved this. He had been obsessed with guns since he was six. It was his grandfather who taught Israel to shoot. Not long after, Israel began breaking into homes, stealing guns, and selling them illegally. While Heidi and Israel both downplayed this time, investigators recognized its developmental importance. By the time he was 14, Israel's behavior escalated. He realized how different he was from other kids. Once, Israel caught a cat, put a cord around its neck, shot it, and it ran around vomiting and crashed into a tree. Israel didn't react, but the kid he was with threw up, traumatized, and ran to tell his dad. And that was the last time Israel went into the woods with anyone else, a witness. This is the classic progression from child to full-blown sadistic psychopath as described in criminology textbooks. They practice torture and killing animals for pleasure, hone their skills, and then graduate to humans. Adult Israel couldn't understand why these acts were so cruel. During the psyche eval, when asked if he'd ever hurt anyone badly when a child, Keyes minimized, quote, a few minor scuffles, I'm pretty much non-confrontational, end quote. Non-confrontational, huh? Ask the couriers about that one. At 15, Keyes began to build his own cabin away from his parents. Heidi did not approve. He was just too young, but didn't try to stop him. By now, Jeff had completed the family home with a fancy generator, stove, and propane for lighting. But Keyes realized he had to be alone. The stark reality was he'd hunt anything breathing and animals were no longer enough. His skills included being able to camouflage himself, heightened senses, knowing how to butcher a deer. Unobserved, he sat in the woods for hours watching people, pondering how easy it would be to take someone and make him disappear. An arrest came at 16 for shoplifting, and he was forced by his parents to move back home. By now, Jeff and Heidi had left the white supremacist Ark religious cult. This is when Israel told his parents he didn't believe in organized religion, thinking they'd understand. Rude surprise, his father disowned him, from favorite son to pariah in a flash. Heidi, however, still loved her son and supported him, refusing to go along with Jeff. And Israel told the team, quote, Mom saw past that. She cared about me, end quote. At 18, Keyes took a construction job and started dating the boss's daughter. In his journal, he admits having shameful, sinful thoughts about her while continuing to write Bible verses. Odd for an atheist. Heidi and Jeff forbade this dating, saying Israel and his girlfriend could only write letters, with Israel complying. But the home front was not going smoothly. Other Keyes' children were causing problems, describing themselves as sinful, lepers, and the forsaken. By 1996, the family relocated to Maupin, Oregon. Giving up his girlfriend, Israel moved, continuing his codependent relationship with his mom, who continued to sabotage his efforts to be an independent adult. Maupin, Oregon. The family was back to living in tents again. Delhi's hungry. There less than a year, they inexplicably moved across the country to Malone, New York. While buying new property, Israel's dad signed the deed over to him. Was this some apology? Unknown. Then they moved again to Shmirna, Maine to make honey among the Amish. All right, that was it. Israel had had enough. He was done with this life, which started in Mormonism, shift to extremist Christian fundamentalism, which Israel called, quote, crazy white people with guns, end quote. And now the Amish? Oh, no. His journals reflect his longing for his Colville girlfriend, questioning why he couldn't live his own life since his family were pioneering paranoid nuts. Alone, he lived in his barely habitable New York farmhouse and recalled being happiest there. After earning his GED in 1998, he joined the military, 
as we suspected, which brought a whole new set of skills and opportunities for a fledgling serial killer like Israel Keys. And I hate to stop, but that is it for episode 47, Meticulous Methods, American Predator by Maureen Callahan, part two. Now in episode 48, Macabre Chit Chat, Callahan takes us further into the mind of this serial killer as the desperate investigators seek to identify more victims with a shocking ending. It is not possible for me to cover all the twists and turns, so read the book. You will love it as much as I did. And my choice for our next book is A Death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. In 1962, Jerry Sherwood gave up her newborn son, Dennis, for adoption. 20 years later, she set out to find him, only to discover he died before his fourth birthday. What happened to the little boy Jerry never forgot? She begins asking questions, which unlock a 20-year secret wrapped in apathy and silence. Do not miss this, please. We need to remember Dennis and his legacy. Thank you for listening. Email me at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I love hearing from you. Hit up the merch store and send me photos, please. And leave a five-star review. It really does matter. Subscribe where you listen to podcasts, car, home, work, working out. Let my episodes pop right into your feed. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Lock your doors. Source material, snack and drink information, plus show notes and photographs for the American Predator Trilogy is found on my blog too. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved, music by Carl Hosena, and lyrics by Otto Harbach.